Chapter 25 December 23 Almost 11 o'clock p.m. After smiling and saying yes to her mother, warm enough, Dee nodded her parting gratitude to the ranks of the blue uniforms, whose mandate extended to the hospital entry and no further. Martial law beyond the police saluting her as she passed through the doors and into the cold outside, into the capable hands of the National Guard. Miss D. Mirabile, D. turning to the neatly dressed officer, I am Lieutenant Colonel Lee Sawhurst, charged with providing protection for your group from here to the Parkman Bandstand. Just tell me what you need. Thank you. Colonel, is, is that right? Yes, ma'am, simply Colonel. I'm very pleased to meet you, Colonel. You'll forgive my silence, please, my dear friend Stella, gesturing. Will speak for me. Dee taking several steps forward from the group before Sawhurst could formulate an objection she walking slowly towards Cambridge Street and the start of her yellow brick road to the Parkman bandstand, barely hearing the ensuing conversation. Pleased to meet you, Colonel, Stella proffering her hand, stepping into him to gain his full attention, the Colonel shaking her hand and that of every one of the group as Stella introduced them one by one. D has our route mapped. She walking alone with us just tagging along, keeping out of her way. Sawhurst saying, It's good to meet you all. Just a heads up to Stella. I think we should get D over here to hear this. D's not hearing this. The idea, Stella saying. He nodded, saying, you know martial law is in place with an eight o'clock curfew, so all good people are at home a long time. Whoever is on the street now is in violation of the curfew, and a good many of not-so-good people are on the streets looking for trouble. We can expect to see some of them along the way, be assured we have a large enough force to ward off any trouble and plenty more in instant reserve. But we are only here to protect you, not to make arrests. So unless someone deliberately comes our way, we are not going to interfere with anything that we see. Stella, we have every confidence in you, thank you. She breaking off to catch up with Dee, who hearing footsteps turn using her thumb and forefinger to indicate space, stopping Stella ten feet from her, the other pilgrims clustering about Stella, the guard shaping around them, no soldier ever closer to any of their wards than twenty-five feet, no further than twenty-five feet. In the middle of well-lit but deserted Cambridge Street, her route uphill towards Government Center, Dee stopped and slowly turned a 360, taking a very deep breath, 
pushing it out through pursed lips, thinking Gauguin, thinking earth tones and warm breezes, thinking French Polynesian sweetness and light, thinking lying down, thinking. Back in real time, Dee launched the meditative pilgrimage with four baby steps before stepping up into a measured pace. She didn't believe in portents, of course, that she at the height of this month's menstruation or the moon full and the night resonating mournfully with baying hounds, barking dogs, howling wolves, and yipping coyotes, or that her body cries for sleep, deep sleep, or that she had just left her best lifelong friend, not certain either of them will ever see the other again on earth. None of these harbingers of events to come, not predictors of her story's end. Of this, she quite certain. And yes, honestly, she would right now welcome a special delivery good luck, Hallmark card, or a solitary white dove perched on one of the street lamps, or perhaps a host of avenging angels coming upon a midnight clear. Any auspicious signal, no matter how trivial, to counterbalance the unsettling non-portents. But at least the weathermen kept the snow away and neutralized the wind, and the mild for winter midnight 35 degrees made the walk bearable, if not balmy Tahiti. Only three minutes into the walk, when Sawhurst pointing to the top of the hill, barked an order, stopping the group in place. The front ranks hustled to form a single straight line, aiming their weapons. Loping straight at them from the government center area, a mixed pack of close to 40 canines, including a variety of larger domestic breeds, plus a half dozen coyotes and three wolves, 300 feet away, accelerating as they closed the gap. D detached, watched the unfolding action as she might a grade B television episode, relishing the awareness of her own disassociation. Sawhurst at the front line shouted, Fire! And the responding thunder felling half the animals. Undaunted, the remaining beasts drove, drove forward at full tilt, slobbering, snarling, and growling with bared fangs, the ensuing at-will firing leaving six only of animals still, charging at twenty feet, only one of that half-dozen making it past the guardsmen, a huge pink-eyed albino master frothing at the mouth, and heading directly at D, the predator neither misdirected nor slowed when one of the guardsmen leaped landing askew on his back, tenaciously locking his arms around the brute's mane, his legs around its hindquarters. Herself unfazed, Dee felt Stellar and Philip hard by her shoulders and watched Lieutenant Sam and Sergeant Jesse materialize in front of her, each of them stiff-armed firing into the side of the animal opposite the hanging guardsman the creature stumbling to the ground just several feet from them, with the bareback riding guardsman knees dragging, clinging with only one arm around the stumbling, do stumbling dog's neck, retrieved a hunting knife from his belt and plunged it into the mastiff's throat, 
covering himself and those close by in a shower of blood, reducing the already mortally wounded killing machine to an amorphous heap, the canine tongue spilling out of its mouth like a dead eel. While relief showed on many faces, acknowledgement and appreciation not tonight part of Dee's mindset, she delaying a restart only to permit Stella to clean dog blood from her face. Stella holding Dee's chin, kissing her cheek before returning to the ten-foot inner perimeter, the Stella moment giving the guard time to reform, including Sawhurst's designation of a dozen guardsmen to rifle-butt the canine carcasses and to shoot any canine still alive, piling the carcasses for later removal. Dee watched a 12-pound black-and-white shih tzu on the far sidewalk, he observing the massacre's aftermath while holding a dripping human hand in his mouth. Dee broke off her study and stepped forward again, the entourage moving with her. Boston City Hall, a monument to brutalist architectural style, features symmetrical uh, cantilevered concrete forms and sits in the middle of a multi-leveled, vast, unadorned field of brick called City Hall Plaza, its stark, hard coldness a fitting metaphor for the moment. D reaching its perimeter just two minutes after leaving the scene of the canine attack. Without altering her pace, Dee slowly turned to a commotion coming from the irregularly shaped concourse a hundred feet to her left, where two dozen men brandishing knives and clubs attacked one another in a series of random individual contests, no sides, no goals, just the thrill of survival, of mayhem, of murder denoting the compelling parallels to Johnny Cash's nihilistic image. I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, struggling to purge to purge the clinging melody as unwanted as a computer virus. Still watching, she watched a male, a three-foot-long metal pipe in one hand, the other pulling the hand of a woman holding uh, the, wom the woman holding an infant, the nuclear family running from the scene, pursued by three small crying children holding their jackets tightly at their necks against the cold, one of them holding a small doll with her free hand, a second holding a teddy bear and the last a blanket, all stumbling to keep pace with the adults, they turning to encourage the kids, the man releasing the woman's hand, circling to the rear of the family to discourage two knife-wielding men closing on them. From the main melee, Dee heard, Help me! Kill the fuck! Oh, my God! And turning through the veil of night, seeing flailing arms and legs and wholesale pushing and falling, impossible to connect voices to figures, although the clearly distinguishable sounds telling the story the thud of clubs hitting bodies, the rattle of chains followed by the snapping bones, and the moans and groans of the untended injured, their cries for help counterproductive. Coming up even with the action, 
Dee saw one man break from the mob and run in her direction, screaming for help, four pursuers close and gaining. When he leaped from the sidewalk onto the street just sixty feet from Dee, Sawhurst barked and twelve guardsmen silently formed into a firing squad, aiming at the prey interloper. A step before he reached Sawhurst's virtual do-not-cross line, his pursuers brought him down, kicking and beating him, his movements slowing, stopping altogether. Not the attack, however, one of the attackers saying, he's done, drew the attention of one with an eye patch, he turning on the speaker saying, you defending him? Before the speaker could deny, eye patch caught him in a headlock and with the help of the other two dragged him to the ground, D passing out of sight, out of mind. Just after City Hall Plaza, Cambridge Street segues to Tremont Street and passes State Street on the left. At that intersection, D looked down State where a criminal's only street fest had broken out, laughing and shouting marauders on a rampage, breaking windows, setting cars afire, emerging from windowless and doorless stores laden with goods. Two dozen feral dogs scattered over the scene, either growled and nipped at the heels of the rioters, or fought model combats with others of the dogs. And up the middle of the street, an ancient tourist-pulling cart horse, sans driver, had a skew covering one eye, the visible eye bulging, the horse whinnying his terror ran madly towards the group, turning his head to bite at the bobcat clinging to the plug's back, the larger-than-average housecat snarling and ripping at him over and over again. One looter carrying a flat screen with several cords hanging loosely from it tripped and fell. Four dogs attacked, ripping and tearing at him, finding flesh, he yelling, Help me, help me, as he kicked and flailed at his attackers, his cries drawing jeers and cheers from his fellows, along with several random kicks. Hey, he's right there on the ground, defenseless, like, why not? The Boston Common lay just a spit away, but Sawhurst stopped the guardsmen again, deploying the entire front rank 200 strong, into a large menacing arc. D looking past the ranks, saw the covering, saw that covering the street and sidewalk ahead, an undulating carpeting of rats overlapping four feet of the Boston Common on their right, extending across the thirty foot wide Tremont Street and another ten feet across the adjacent sidewalk. The rodents hemmed by the buildings facing, the swath of vermin running more than a hundred feet long down Tremont Street. Command given the two hundred guardsmen free-fired into the swarm, the explosion of bullets launching many of the rats, some still intact, many more disintegrated, filling the air with shreds of fur, scurf, scurf and rodent parts, the fusillade scattering the lucky ones, tens of thousands of the noxious animals disappearing in the volley. Dee's blinking failed to stop her in a voice humming, It's raining rats, alleluia, until she gained the park. 
feeling the evil from her first step onto the common. It's now 20 minutes past 11, but Dean not ready to face the evil and the time not right. She led her entourage across the park from the Parkman bandstand, walking along the far side of it toward the public garden, where stood her angel. At the end of the park, their destination now just across Child Street, saw her stop the procession. A buzz quickly grew into a roar that introduced a caravan of army troop carriers stopping immediately in front of them, live engines disturbing the stillness of the curfewed winter's night, the trucks a barrier separating the common from the garden. Four army officers descended from the jeep leading the caravan, they crossing to D's group while the rank and file jumped from the truck, rushing to take up positions in and around the public garden. The army officer in charge, Colonel Robert Kyoda, after returning saw her salute, ordered National Guardsman Lieutenant Colonel Sawhurst to step down to exit the area, using the leg of Child Street, taking them away from the parks area. Kyoto's only Kyoto's own twenty five hundred army regulars to assume immediately resp immediate responsibility for the civilians and their mission. His last involvement Sawhurst introduced Stella to Kyoto as the go to person. Stella impressed that Kyoto henceforth speak directly and only to her, she introducing everyone in her group but D she needing isolation, Stella saying, demanding immediate access to the public garden. Her last directive, the truck engines be turned off immediately. Sawhurst withdrew his men as ordered, as Kyoto personally oversaw that the troop carrier drivers shut off every engine. Peace and order restored, the army colonel himself escorted Stella at all, across Child Street and into the public garden, introducing them en masse to his officers, reminding the officers that the well-being of these civilians, this army's only responsibility, that the group free to wander as they choose, unimpeded, but not unguarded. Dee stopped about a hundred feet from the angel and turned for Stella, she already by Dee's side, already speed-dialing Laurie baby, Stella's finger asking D for a moment, Stella into the phone asking after Laney, repeating Laurie Baby's answer to D, no change. Kyoto drifting over for direction heard D saying to Stella, I'm going to spend a few minutes alone with the angel, this spot close enough for everybody else. Stella nodded, turning to Kyoto, he already hustling off, to establish the hundred-foot perimeter around the angel. Dee slid off her gloves and hat, putting them in her coat pocket, before removing her coat and handing it to Stella, Dee squeezing her hands, walking away. Stella stayed put, waving her group to join her. Straight ahead in the far right-hand corner of the park stood the iconic, heroic bronze angel, with one hand holding a basket against her hip, and the other, as its name says, casting bread upon the waters. The piece, a classically 
lovely muscular seraph with a fully spread set of huge, powerful, yet feathery wings. Twenty feet from it, Dee stopped, folded her arms across her chest and stared. Had she forgotten the, the detachment of this angel? Beautiful, ideal, but untouched by environment or genetics, lacking human warmth, devoid of the idiosyncratic that defines individuals. She unsure now if this the place to gird herself for the coming confrontation. She moved closer to the bronze, the asphalt of the public walkway yielding to the granite pavement surrounding the sculpture, the sculpture standing on an eight-foot-high pedestal, its base decorated by two ram's heads and two cornucopias, complemented by a winter-dry fountain dug into the ground immediately in front of it, the entire installation well lit by two lampposts and eight spotlights, semi-encircled by full evergreen bushes concealing the spot from the sidewalk, additionally protected by the wrought iron fence that enclosed the entire park. Herself so respected, the angel seemed to challenge the dauntless to be bolder, the heroic more valorous. Staring at the no-nonsense angel, Dee definitely did not feel valorous. Would she flee the challenge? Maybe, if she could, if no one watched. But maybe not. She put her hand on the figure's leg and walked behind it, temporarily lost from sight, hearing from the sidewalk on the outside of the surrounding bushes and fence a transmission alerting the perimeter guards of Dee's position and movements. No, not flee, but will she have the strength to approach and face the laptop? Will she man up and confront the demon, or knowing defeat the only outcome which she frees in place? She felt her legs tremble a bit, aware of the hundreds of soldiers surrounding her, watching her, they the brave. Will she, like them, rise heroically to the occasion, or will reason undermine her good intentions? She knew about battle trance, soldiers responding to their blind obedience training, acting heroically under the influence of the drums and bugles blasting mortal martial music, influenced also by the surround of comrades and arms forsaking their primeval instinct for self-preservation, rushing to engage cogs in a large military machine. Not she losing control, she knew that. Laurie Baby had suggested that she simply not show up, and not so bad an idea as Dee first thought. Jesus himself begged off his confrontation. Take this cup. Ultimately, of course, stepping up, thy will be done. But he stayed where he knew he'd be taken prisoner, forced to face the Sanhedrin, forced to face Pilate, forced into a cross. And he had insurance that he would be taken. Where was her Judas when she needed him? A no-show, he, forcing her to volunteer. But Jesus faced death, a big difference. She didn't. 
her enemy couldn't kill her. He tried once, will not make the same mistake, not risk that pain again. Deidre drifted, distant, vague images of events past, rapid firing through her head, the large fangs of a giant demon serpent and a raised head ready to kill her, an angel immutable, so like the face of casting bread. Small demons, creatures half wolf, half human, a coven of devil worshippers. Thinking now, of course, she doesn't know that her past allies will in fact be there to protect her. She could just ask. Why couldn't she just ask? Solve everything right there. But just thinking on it choked her. So sorry. I can't deal. Pride, shame, whatever. I can't reach out. I don't know why. I just can't. She leaned against the pedestal and buried her head in her arms and cried softly. He can kill her. So why this dramatization? Dee lifted her head, restarting her slow, circling the statue. Did he want to physically hurt her? Maybe, but only maybe. Dee never feared pain, her body able to produce adrenaline-like, enough natural analgesic to reduce any pain to tolerable. She never a crybaby anyway, never a complainer, so why arrange the drama? She knew the answer. She had done well with her presentation, brought many people to their senses, their spirits buoyed by the strength of a warrior and the pervasive power, persuasive powers of an innocent. People had become hopeful and more resistant to temptation. The hope she had brought to her followers considerably slowed the demon's plan for the destruction of mankind. Tonight he will publicly destroy this hope. Common knowledge, she searches for the website destroying mankind to destroy it. Well, she's found the server, okay. It found her. Summoned her, even. Now she must purge the demon from the internet. Her challenge. Failing that? She can't even think about failing that. But how, without help, with none forthcoming? Certainly not without her asking, which she positively cannot. Can she exorcise this demon? No. She doesn't have that power. Never did have it, not on her best day. Going one-on-one -on -one with him? The serpent in a different guise? Not a chance. So she faces a demonstration so definitive a humiliation so devastating as to eliminate the only credible resistance to Satan's plot. So his campaign accelerates and he, the Pied Piper, pipes mankind into the end of days when he'll dance around an entire world of lost souls. She retched in place and again a second time, holding to the fountain for support taking Stella's proffered tissue and wiping her mouth, swapping it for a bottle of water and taking a mouthful, swishing and spitting, drinking, swapping it for another tissue, wiping her mouth again and handing that back as well. Dee felt Stella's pain, born of her sharing Dee's thoughts. 
sharing Dee's despair. Should she have taken Lari baby and spared Stella this? Not able to finish her thought before Stella attacked, nearly squeezing the breath from Dee. Never think that, Dee. That hurts worst of all. I need to be here. We need to share your grief. They shared hugs and kisses, Stella returning to the others, sharing a hug with Lorraine, whose red swollen face, obvious to Dee even in the dark, even at a distance. Mother had never been with Dee during a spiritual confrontation of any kind, had never seen her tortures, never understood what her girlfriends meant to her. Not alone, Dee thinking. How lucky to have such friends thinking. Clever he. Thought ahead, really. Really did me in. It seemed back then just going cold turkey at a high price for the addiction. Wow. Cold turkey, just a down payment. Only now the full payment coming due. Thinking, my dear Laney, my dear, dear Laney, are you still alive? I promised I would be there with you. Can you wait for me? Or will we die separately at the same time tonight? Set your watch, dear girl. Twenty minutes. Thinking Galadriel. To be the bearer is to be alone. Thinking Frodo. Hopeless is trudging, climbing, scrabbling, crawling to exhaustion. He did have Sam. My girlfriend's my Sam the thought buoying her. Audibly to the cold angel, not much help, are you? Dee talking audibly to herself, wait, wait, you know what? The most important part, myself. What I am, militant. Not a target to suffer slings and arrows, but a doer. Best on the offensive, what I'm good at, win or lose. Thinking, my only regret is that I have but one life. Thinking into the valley of death, rode the six hundred and back audibly, me being six o one, and losing not so bad, finally facing a judgment I deserve, a judgment I've evaded long enough, paying the price, enjoying the relief that comes with expiation. She posed like the angel beside her, looking to her gang, looking back at her, deciding, saying loudly into the still and cold, Time to go. Stella, her tears audible, already racing to her. Stella near tackling Dee, as she said, Go. The embraced pair crying and laughing out loud, trying to keep their balance while the others gathered around, waiting, wondering until D loudly, let's take the bridge over the pond, as in just another stroll in the park, saying, we have an appointment to keep, gesturing Philip and Stella to either side of her for their arms. Mother tapping D's shoulder, holding, holding D's coat open for her to slip on, which she did. And then facing front, friends at her side, family behind her, arms support around the pack of them, and implanted among the soldiers, three friendly spies in black suits, white shirts, and dark ties, thinking inconspicuous, Dee strode to her rendezvous.